If you're a guest this morning, uh, good morning. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Hunt Community Church. Glad you have chosen to worship with us on Easter Sunday. And I pray you've had a great week. I've spent most of my week watching my kids play softball and baseball and just so much fun to be around and just getting to know a lot of people. And to be honest, this week I didn't even watch, I didn't even watch uh, March Madness. I, in fact, I haven't watched one game of March Madness this year. It's probably the first time in my life I've never not even watched one single game. Um, how many of you would say that you didn't watch one game this year of March Madness? Oh, yeah, okay, most of you, okay. Uh, so I do know that UConn won. Uh, they, they won. Uh, I know that the number one seeds all got knocked out pretty early, um, but I didn't watch one single game. I'm sure millions and probably maybe billions of dollars were spent around March Madness. It's a huge sporting event, um, not as big as the Super Bowl, but still a pretty big event. And we often make huge deals about you know sports and these events, but it always fascinates me how quickly we forget who the champions are. So we, you know, some of you didn't even know UConn won until I just said UConn won, right? Some of you had no idea. Um, can, how many of you, just show of hands, could name the champion of men's basketball from last year? Just show of hands. One, a few in the back, okay. Can, okay, so that was, uh, that was who? It's here. Kansas won last year. Let's just go back one more year. Who can name the winner before that? We're thinking, we're thinking, Baylor, it was Baylor. We have one guy that knows pointless information, right? See, sports can be one of those things that can be such an idol for us. We spend, you know, billions of dollars around sports, but it's, it, it's, it's amazing how quickly, like, people can just forget, um, you know, the champions. They're, they're, they're the pinnacle. They're the champs, but we quickly forget. We, it just shows us how meaningless and useless, like some of this information can be in these categories we put sports in, you know, of importance, and it just, it's really not that important. Well, our passage this morning, it's, it's about how meaningless or useless our lives are if something isn't true. Uh, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul argues that if one part of the Christian faith isn't true, then your entire faith completely falls apart. So if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start reading in verse 1 as Paul warns us how our lives are meaningless, meaningless if the resurrection is not true. So let me pray for our time in God's word this morning. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians or scrolling, maybe to 1 Corinthians 15. Lord Jesus, we come knowing that you reign, that you are the king, that we serve a risen Savior. And we pray that now your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we would be just in awe of what you've done for us that we would be in awe of who you are, that you are the king of kings, that you are the ultimate champion. Lord, may we leave this place just emboldened with faith. We pray this all in your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, let's, let's just pause here. Paul begins by saying he is reminding them of the gospel that he had preached to them. Now, there are some reasons why you might remind somebody of something. You may remind them because they've either forgotten or maybe they've misunderstood what you were saying or maybe they just aren't doing what you first asked them to do. Now, in this case, it seems like from the greater context around this passage that the Corinthian church had a great misunderstanding about the resurrection, which led them to having a poor understanding of the gospel. And Paul says that he has preached the gospel to them. And in verse 3, Paul begins to give us one of the best definitions of the word gospel found in the Bible. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's received something. Now he's delivering it. And he says it's of first importance. So this message of first importance, what was it? What was so important? What would we call first importance? Maybe it was tithing to the First Baptist Church of Corinth. Maybe having energetic music. Like, that's what you got to have, right? That's first importance. Got to have a great band. Or maybe it's fighting all the social injustices in the city. Maybe first importance is that they need a vibrant children and youth ministry program. Or maybe having adequate parking might be first importance for Paul. Now, all of these things are worthy causes. They're all good things. But none of them are of first importance. So what is it? Well, let's keep reading. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says that the most important truth in this life is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, raised on the third day. That's it. It's not living the American dream. It's not finding a husband or a wife or having kids or not having kids. What is first importance is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 is a really good working definition of the word gospel. The gospel is not just the death of Jesus, but it's also the resurrection of Christ. See, we usually just talk about the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is really important because we see that his death had a purpose. We see that from this passage, just even logically, first, his death, it served a physical display of his love. If you ever doubt how much Jesus loves you, just look to the cross. How many people would be willing to die for you? Honestly, you know, they would may say it. Yeah, I would die for you. I love you so much. But would they really, like, die? Jesus died for you. So when you think that God doesn't love you, just look to the cross. He, he shows. He doesn't just say it. He shows his actions on the cross by dying for you. The second purpose of his death is that it, it satisfied the wrath of God. 
We see this in many passages. I could turn to Romans 1, but we're going to look at Ephesians 2 this morning. Ephesians 2 says this, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. You ever felt that way? Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, we were far from God, but the death of Christ has brought us near God. And then verse 16, if you drop down a few verses, and might reconcile us both to God, both here is referring to Jew and Gentiles, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Then look at this, thereby killing the hostility. See, God's wrath is no longer on you, you Christian. You have peace with God. So his death on the cross satisfied or appeased God's righteous requirement for your life so that now we can have peace with God. So that's what the death of Jesus, and that's really what we talk a, a lot about. We talk about his death, but let's not forget the resurrection. The resurrection also served a purpose. First, we see here in this passage, because it was accordance with scriptures. So the Old Testament talked about his resurrection. Jesus talked about how he would, you know, tear this temple down, it'll be raised in three days. And so this shows us that the Bible is trustworthy. We can trust his word. Second, his resurrection shows us that, that he has power over sin and death. How many of you still struggle with ongoing sin? I'm not going to pass the mic around this morning and have you talk about your ongoing sin. But if we're honest, we all still like, we love Jesus and we try to be obedient to Jesus. But if we're honest, we still struggle with that obedience, don't we? But Jesus, he has conquered this and, and he is there to help us. He's reigning right now. He's not still in the tomb. He's helping you right now with your ongoing sin. That's good news for us. The church at Corinth was a mess. They, they struggled with sin. Paul loved this church, but they were a mess. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he's writing to the same, same congregation, and he says this in chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So none of you can say, oh, you have no idea what I'm going through. My temptation is unique to me. Uh, maybe parts of it, but the general concept, it's common to man. He says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise God. That means he is reigning right now in heaven, helping you overcome your sin. That when that temptation comes, you, you might fall into that temptation. But this says, what this passage says is that he at least gives you a way to get out of it. That just because that's the way it's always been doesn't mean that's the way it has to be this week. That there's hope here for you, Christian. That if you're struggling, when that temptation comes this week, 
Look for the way out of it. Because Jesus is saying, there is a way out. You don't have to keep doing what you've always done. Look for the way to get out, that escape that he's providing for you, that you can endure this time of temptation. See, Christ was fully man. He was tempted just like we are. That's what this is saying, which is insane to think about. But unlike us, he never gave in to sin. And now he will not let you, you Christian, be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will provide that way of escape. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel, not just on Easter Sunday, but all throughout. I love, it's funny, like how when we get near Christmas season, I know Zach puts a lot of time into the songs. And around Christmas time, we sing like very unique Christmas songs that we only sing. We call them Christmas songs, right? We only sing them then. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Do we ever sing that in June? Never. No. But the songs we sang this morning, Zach, don't we sing these songs? We sing them all throughout the year. Because every Sunday for us is about the gospel. It's about the resurrection. So the gospel is not just what we hear that saves us. The gospel is something that is continually preached and sung to us. It preserves us. Every week, you need to have the gospel preached over your souls. It's good for us. His death and resurrection are monumental for our perseverance. We need it. That is a major point that Paul is trying to help the Corinthians to understand. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the depth. It's deep waters for us. And in this church, at the Corinthian church, there's a faction of them. We don't know how many, but it was enough for Paul to be concerned about that, that they believe that the resurrection it just wasn't even true. Not, not just the resurrection of Christ isn't true, but that there's just no resurrection at all for anyone. You live, you die, and that's it. And Paul was writing to correct this heresy. Paul was saying the death and resurrection is of first importance. We have to get this right or it messes up everything else. So he spends the rest of the chapter trying to convince them that Jesus really did physically die and raise from the dead. And he begins in a very logical way. Look what Paul brilliantly does in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, why would he mention Cephas? You have to go back to the beginning of this letter. But there is a group in this church that has made Cephas, or Peter, into this idol. And they said that they followed Peter. And at least to this group, this faction who loved Peter, if Peter said, yeah, it's true, I saw the resurrected Christ, then that would probably give that group a lot of confidence in the resurrection. 
He goes on to say, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, fallen asleep here, it's a phrase that simply means that they've died. So he's saying some of these 500 have died, which means you cannot go ask them because they're dead, but most of these 500 are still alive, meaning go ask them for yourself. A witness... An eyewitness is someone who's very trustworthy. They've seen it. They can testify to it. It's not hearsay. It's fact. Paul says, go ask them. Paul knew how fortunate he was to have seen the historical event. In verse 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. And then starting in verse 12, he begins to ask a series of logical questions to challenge those in the church who did not believe in the physical resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's a good question. If the Bible says there is a resurrection, but you say there isn't, then do you just not trust the Bible? So he then carries out their logic. He says in the next verse, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay? So what? I mean, what's the big deal if Christ has not been raised? He answers the next verse. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And here's the more crucial one. Your faith is in vain. Vain here would, maybe your translations may use the word like useless or meaningless. So Jesus dies for the sins of the world. That's good news. Right? We like that part. But if Jesus does not raise from the dead, Paul says your faith is useless. It's meaningless. He continues this this logic, his reasoning. Look down at 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who are alive, or those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's terrible news for us, right? Paul's making a huge statement. This is huge. We got to get this right. First, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we have all been guilty for lying, misrepresenting God, because we've been proclaiming that he's alive. Last night, our, um, my daughters had a softball game. I, I told the softball team, last night, I invited them to church, told them the meaning of Easter. Like, I'd be lying to them if this isn't true. I just lied to a bunch of girls. It's not right of me. Second, if the dead are not raised, then Christ, who is fully man, he has also not been raised. And third, this is a big one. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile 
or pointless, meaningless, which means you and I are still in our sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says we are of all, all people most to be pitied. I'm guessing some of you may push back here with Paul. You may disagree with his point here. Some of you would think, even if this whole Christianity thing is not true, it's all just fake, some guys made up the Bible, and we've all been tricked into believing it, then I've still had a good life. That's what some of you would think. You'd push back here. So let's just run with that for a moment. Let's say that you've lived a long life as a faithful Christian, and when you die, you realize, oh, man, this is not true. Everything I believed in, Christianity, it's fake. And let's just say you're given a chance in that moment to go back to your early 20s and redo everything, how you lived out your life. Would you do it? Some of you, some of you would not change a thing. You think even if Christianity is not true, then living the Christian life is the best possible life one could live. I'm guessing some of you would say amen to that. Even if this is not true. I've enjoyed Sundays. It's fun. I get to hang out with people. I enjoy being around. Get to have morals. People respect me for my morals. You think, this is it's a pretty good life. If Paul was here and you said that to him, he might grab you and punch you right in the face. Paul might say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why in the world would you do that? Paul says, if our lives, if this is not true, then we are to be most pitied. And not all of you know what pitied means, right? Have you ever had your heart blessed? You know, like when you say something really dumb, and someone looks at you and they just say, bless your heart. In that moment, you're being pitied, okay? You never want your heart blessed. And Paul says, if you're going to risk your life, if you're going to lay everything down for something that's fake, giving away your wealth for something that's fake, giving up all your free time, serving others for something that is fake, and Paul would say, if you're going to be beaten, put in jail, left for dead for something that is fake, bless your heart. Some of you that think, like, this life is the best life, Paul might say, then maybe you need to take more risks. Maybe you need to have a little more boldness about you. Because maybe you're not facing some persecution because... You're just trying to maybe mix a little bit of the Christian life with a little bit of the American dream. And Paul's saying, if this is not fake, I don't want any part of it. We are to be most pitied. But if the resurrection is true, and it's worth it all. But Paul says there's a problem here. If the resurrection is not true, we, we've, we're walking around here thinking that God's pleased with us. 
that his wrath has been settled by the death and resurrection. But if the resurrection is not true, then we're still in a world of mess because our sins still need to be atoned for. Christianity cannot survive with a dead Savior. This is why it's first importance. But Paul says, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, Paul pictures Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits was, it's simply the first part of the crops that surface every year. And these first fruits were given as an offering to God. And Paul makes this connection between these two Adams. The first Adam in the garden messed everything up. The last Adam, Christ, has restored what was originally damaged. All those in Adam will die. All those in Christ will live. This is what's called the federal head, that Christ represents us as a people. So if you're in Christ, you will also be raised from the dead. Christ is raised first, but then in verse 23, we see that there's an, there's an order in how this raising will take place. But each in his own order, verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected um, who uh, put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Christ is above. He reigns. He is Lord of all. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Philippians 2, verse 8 says this, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. Every creature that has ever existed will one day bow down to King Jesus. From you to me. To every athlete, movie star, Democrat, Republican, to the richest man in the world, to the poor old lady that lives down the street, from the Pope or other religious leaders, to the man who lives in a grass hut in Northeast India. Every single person 
will bow their knee to King Jesus, either on this side of eternity or the next. And this side of eternity is the only one that's going to matter. Paul continues to question the Corinthians in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized uh, on their behalf? Now, Paul is not saying that we should be baptizing people on behalf of the dead, okay? Here's his, his point is that some, like in this Corinthian culture, there were some who were practicing this. But this would make no sense to baptize people on behalf of the dead because they don't even believe in a resurrection. So he's challenging their logic. If the dead are not raised and our bodies just remain in the ground, then baptizing people on their behalf, it, it has no real purpose. Paul was just showing them that they are being inconsistent in their thinking. Verse 30, he circles back to his previous logic. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. At this point in Christianity, there's, there's actually no known record of Christians being martyred by wild beasts like you'll see centuries later. Roman Colosseum, you see this recorded. So we don't really know what Paul means here when he's referring to these, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Maybe it's happening, we just don't have any record of it. But if the dead are not raised, if the resurrection is not true, Paul's saying, why don't we just enjoy this life? Right? Stop taking risks for a God who's dead. Stop giving away your money. Live this life up. Just eat, drink, and be merry because at some point you're going to die. Your life will be completely over and you will cease to exist. And that's the culture we live in, isn't it? That's what we see all around us. We live in a post Christian culture. We live in a culture that believes the resurrection doesn't exist. This is it. Most people believe that once you die, you're dead. And that's why we see in our world, we have a very selfish, narcissistic society. It's all about me. What can I get now? Because they're not living for what's next. Everything is about ourselves if the resurrection is not true. But if Christ did raise from the dead, then this life is not the end. Death is just the beginning. So this life does matter. We see this in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Paul's logic is clear. If there is no afterlife, then you can essentially live however you want. But since there is an afterlife, since there is a resurrection, then how you live in this life actually matters. So he tells them, don't go on sinning. 
But someone will ask, verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Apparently, Paul does not believe in the idea that there are no dumb questions. They ask a question. He calls them foolish. He goes on what? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body that, he, that is as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Paul uses this agricultural illustration to further his point. He says that death brings life. We don't like to talk about death, do we? Paul says that death brings about life. And he uses this concept of seeds dying, bearing fruit, the Corinthians, you know, they, they would understand this. They've seen this. This illustration, he says, there are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. They are distinct. They are different. Um, if you were to go outside, there's a huge oak tree out here. It would be like the heavenly body. It's alive and strong today, but something died for this oak tree to be as strong and powerful as it is. You think of an acorn, so small. Tiny. If you just, if you were new to life, maybe a child, if they looked at an acorn, I, I don't think they, you, you would ever guess that that little acorn would produce this massive oak tree outside. That it would transform something so small, fragile, into something so massive, strong. That's what Paul's saying here in this section. Verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So these shells that we all live in these bodies are perishing, aren't they? You know, if you're in your 20s, you feel like you're invincible. Nothing can stop you. You can play basketball all day long. It's amazing. I remember those days. They were great. Get to the basketball court Saturday morning, 9 a.m., play till dark. It's amazing. Now, play for five minutes, and I'm just praying I don't pull something. My body's breaking down. I look in the mirror. I have like these wrinkles on my eyes. My hair has migrated south. It's amazing turning 40. When you bend, you make this uh, noise. Never made that before 40. But it's like every time now, uh, I don't know why that comes out. Uh. 
Oh, my body is it's perishing. It's breaking down. But what is raised is imperishable. And this is only possible if Christ is who Scripture says he is. Paul writes, verse 45, thus it is written. I pray that we cherish what is written. That book that you have in your hand is it's beautiful. It's life-giving. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also, so also are those who are of the dust, And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus is the better Adam. The first Adam brought death. The last Adam brought us life. But in order to fully receive that life, this perishable body must put on the imperishable Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. When death seems like it has the final word, Christ swoops in, says, not so fast. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory through our church attendance on Easter. Right? Who gives us victory through our giving who gives us victory through helping others, for standing for a cause. Doesn't say that, does it? The only thing that gives you victory is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your life truly begins when you die to yourself, when you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's when your life begins. Maybe you walked in this morning and life's all about you. Christ is calling you right now to lay down your life, to quit being about you, to give him the lordship of your life. Paul concludes in the last verse, verse 58, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
Be steadfast, like the oak, immovable. No matter what comes your way, you, Christian, are not to be shaken. That's true for us. If you are in Christ, there's no reason for you to be anxious about tomorrow. There's no need to worry because you know the end of the story, don't you? I stand victoriously today. My Christ defeated the grave. He's alive. He's reigning from heaven. And whatever comes, all the storms that come in my life, I'm going to get through every single one of them. Christians stand in victory. In the end, we are in Christ. We win. I love winning, don't you? I tell uh, the kids, we, on softball or baseball team, you know, I get all the kids around, like first practice, I'll say, okay, what's the purpose in playing softball or baseball? I love asking this question because they've all been trained. They've all been taught from school. What do you think their answer is? To have fun. We're here to have fun. I'm like, well, we are. We're going to have fun today, but... That's not really the goal in baseball and softball. The goal is we're going, we, we want to win. We want to come here. We want to try our best to win. Now, we're going to lose some games, but that's okay. But our goal, like, we don't want to come out here and just, like, let the other team win. Like, we want to at least try to win. That's the goal. And we win. You, Christian, you win. But if Christ did raise from the dead and you have never surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, if you're still living for yourself today, then you, you actually have many reasons to be anxious about your week, to be anxious about your day. Paul says that the wrath of God is still waiting to be poured out upon your life. I know that's hard to hear, but I love you enough to tell you that. It's what the Bible says. Because your body is, is perishing, the clock is still ticking. Time is running out on you. This urgency is why the gospel is of first importance. If this describes you and your life, then today's the day that you should confess your sin to God. Just say to him. You only have to say it out loud. Just in your head, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you, and I'm sorry for the mess I've made in my life. I want you. I need you to save me. Lord Jesus, you are the one true king. I want to make you Lord of my life. Please save me. Just cry out to him. Give him your life. Then tell somebody that you've done that. It's important that you tell somebody. For all those who have already prayed that, I want to encourage you with this Easter message. Cling to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is 
is not in vain. That's what Paul would say. Paul says, because the resurrection is true, I'm going to keep fighting with these beasts. I'm going to keep risking my life from village to village, town to town, because it is all worth it. Let's continue to lay it all down, because Christ is worth it all. We're going to turn our attention now to the Lord's table. I want you to focus this morning just what Christ has done for you, that he physically left his throne where he reigned, came to this earth to die for your sins. He was buried, and the good news is on Easter Sunday he rose from the dead, and now he's reigning in heaven. Next thing, he's coming back for his bride. In the meantime, we get to look at these elements. You're going to have two elements, a piece of bread and a little cup with juice in it. The bread represents his body that was broken on Friday for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. You get to look at those and just think about what he's done for you, that he loved you enough to die, to take on the wrath of God so you could have peace with his Father. Don't take these elements lightly. It's not a little snack before Easter supper. Think about what he's done for you. Whenever you're ready, if you're a Christian, come take of the Lord's Supper. Um, take a moment before you come. Repent of any sin you need to confess before him. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you would just stay in your seat. Don't come take of the Lord's Supper. But whenever you're ready, you come this morning. Let's pray. God, prepare our hearts now. that we would come rightly to the table. Lord, show us any sin that we maybe aren't even aware of right now. Help us to come rightly to the table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, you come.